BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. A lot to talk about today, an awful lot of the program. This idea that a middle class, I, th- I think most people think that a, vid- a middle class is like a normal thing. That, you know, hey, you have a capitalist economy. You have a functioning democratic government and therefore, you know, small d democratic, and therefore you will have a middle class. It's not a normal thing. Middle classes have to be intentionally caused. My daily rant today, and it's one of the better ones over at HartmanReport.com, there's nothing normal about having a middle class. It has to be chosen, is the headline. And it's true, the American middle class has collapsed. We're heading in the direction of looking like the 19th century England that Charles Dickens wrote about in his novels. Five years ago, the American middle class ceased to be more than half of us. We went from two-thirds of Americans being in the middle class when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980 to 49% in 2015. I'm sorry I don't have current numbers for this. That was the last time that Pew did a really in-depth study on it. Um, Presumably, it's less than 49% now. But NPR commemorated that five years ago with a headline, quote, The Tipping Point, Most Americans No Longer Are Middle Class. This year, we just got some new statistics, actually just last week, from the U.S. Census and the Fed that show that for the first time in American history, they are, excuse excuse me, for the first time in, in my lifetime, the a share of wealth held by the top 1% of Americans has exceeded the share of wealth held by the 49% of Americans who are, quote, middle class. The headline over at Bloomberg from a couple of days ago, top 1% of U.S. earners now hold more wealth than all of the American middle class. Which raises the question, how do you get a middle class? Most people think that capitalism just produces a middle class, right? You've got, uh, you know, uh, captains of industry who build factories and people go to work in those factories or those retail stores or those whatever it may be, and they get paid a salary and that salary turns them into nice middle class consumers. Not how it works. That's how it works in a regulated, taxed capitalist economy, but that's not how it works in an unregulated, neoliberal, low-tax capitalist economy, which is what we've had since 1981. Having a middle class is a choice that we have to make as a society. We have to decide. In 1980, Reagan decided no more middle class. It's pesky, it's problematic, it's a pain in the ass. And there's a reason for that, by the way. The reason that Reagan decided that we have to do away with the middle class, and just think about what America was like, if you're old enough to remember this or if you've read any history books, in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was elected, it was the tail end of 20 years of movements in the United States, social movements that started in the the 60s in a big way. There was the civil rights movement, the, the voting rights movement, the labor movement, The environmental movement, back at, you know, the civil rights movement kind of crescendoed in 1964 and 65 with the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. 
but it was the result of movement politics largely driven by people like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. You had the women's movement, which came out of the birth control pill being legalized in 1961, being in widespread use by 1965. Out of that came you know, women saying, hey, wait a minute, now I can control my fertility. I want to be in the workplace. So we had you know, this, this discarding of the old idea of the woman as the housewife. Louise and I last weekend uh, were just looking for something dumb to watch on TV, and the TV we have in the bedroom is a Roku TV, and they, they, had, they were advertising Bewitched. Remember uh, was, uh, Samantha, uh, was Elizabeth Montgomery, and Dick York? And so we watched a couple episodes of Bewitched, and, and, and it was like this, this kind of window into another time and another world where she's trying to be a housewife, right? That's her job. That's what women did in the early 60s in our society. Well, women said, no, I want to be part of the labor force. And by the 70s, we had this huge women's movement in the United States. Ralph Nader wrote a book called Unsafe at Any Speed, which kicked off in, in 1965, which kicked off a major, actually, that was 67. 65 was uh, uh, Silent Spring. But anyhow, that kicked off a major consumer movement in the United States. That's what provoked Lewis Powell to write his memo. He cites Nader in the memo by name. And then you had, in, in 1965, you had Silent Spring, published by Richard Carlson. If I'm remembering my years right, it was certainly in the 60s, both of them. And that kicked off the environmental movement in the United States, which led a decade later to, to Richard Nixon signing legislation, uh, creating the Environmental Protection Agency. So in 1980, when Reagan came into office, we had had 20 years of young people in the streets, workers in the streets, environmentalists in the streets, consumers in the streets, and the rich people in America and the big corporations, they were over it. They were like, no more. No mas. This is what happens when you have a strong middle class, because in the 60s and 70s, we had the strongest middle class the, the world had ever seen, the United States had ever seen, and it had grown as a result of high tax rates at the top. So the rich people, rather than taking all the money out of their corporation, which is what they do now, had to leave it in the corporation. Otherwise, hey, why pay 91% income tax, right? So they left it in the corporation, and the corporation used that money to pay decent wages. And you had a strong labor movement. So Reagan came into office and said, we don't want any more of these movements, right? This has just been tearing America apart from the conservative point of view. Keep in mind, conservative means we're here for the rich. Always been that way, right? Whether it was the conservatives in the 1770s who were opposed to separating from England, or people like David Hume, the British conservative historian, who, who Jefferson liked to trash every opportunity he had, or whether it was people like John C. Calhoun in the, in the 1800s who were advocates for slavery and oligarchy, or whether it's you know uh, the, the, the right-wing fossil fuel billionaires today. They are always advocates for oligarchy, for their own class and they're always opposed to a middle class. Well, how do you get rid of the middle class? How do you get rid of those pesky people in the streets who are hassling us all? Easy, cut their wages. Move them from the middle class into the working poor. And they will no longer feel brave enough on college campuses to protest because, hey, now they've got $100,000 in student debt. They will no longer feel brave enough to go on strike at their place of work because, hey, there's all kinds of scabs and the laws have changed and we can bust the labor unions. Uh, you know, and, and I, I could go through every single one of the movements, but you get my point. So we chose in 1933 with Franklin Roosevelt to build the first really substantial American middle class. And we accomplished that by the 1970s. And we did it through regulating the economy by things like allowing labor unions, saying, sorry, corporations, you cannot destroy labor unions. So regulation and taxation. And we did it by taxing the very rich at 91% so that, you know, after, now that's, it's a tax bracket, right? It didn't, you did, your 91% taxes didn't even kick in until you were making more than about $3 million in today's money, which is why most CEOs made under $3 million right up until the 1980s. And now, of course, we've got a bumper crop of billionaires, which just drains all that money out of the middle class and throws it into the, into the money bins of the top 
who now own more wealth than the entire American middle class combined. So do you want a middle class back? I mean, this is the question that we need to be asking ourselves. This is, there is no discussion of this in public that I know of. I've been writing about this for years. I mean, this is the basis of my 2005 book, Screwed, that middle classes don't normally emerge in capitalism. What you have instead is Charles Dickens' world. You have a small number of very, very rich people at the top. That would be the royal family and their friends, and the House of Lords, the industrialists of uh, 19th century, 1800s England that Dickens wrote about. They weren't even in A Christmas Story. Then you have a small middle class which is basically the managerial class and the professional class, the doctors, the lawyers, the, the, the company managers, and the small entrepreneurs, the small businesses. That's the middle class. That's what Scrooge was in A, in a Christmas Carol, in Dickens' book. He was the middle class. And they were a very small slice. You had a, you know, a 1% who were very wealthy. You had a 1% or 2% who were the middle class. And then you had this 95% plus that were the working poor. That was Bob Cratchit and his son, Tiny Tim. And that is what's normal. That's how when capitalism is not regulated and taxes on the rich are not high, that's what you get. And that's the direction we've been heading ever since 1981. Now we can make a choice. We can keep heading in that direction or we could start the process of reversing it, which is exactly what Biden's Build Back Better bill does by starting to raise taxes on the super rich to pay for it. And we're not even raising them back to where they were before Trump came into office. But it's a start. Do we want a middle class? Nobody is framing this question in this context, to the best of my knowledge, and everybody should be, because that's what's at stake here. So does this make sense to you? Am I, I hope I'm getting through. And how do, we, how do we spread this message outside of my, you know, ranting into the air and writing these pieces at HartmanReport.com? Welcome back, Tom Harvin here with you. Okay, so number one, we have to decide to have a middle class. And the way you decide to have a middle class is you re-empower your workers, you re-regulate capitalism, and you tax the rich. It's really very straightforward. We did it in the 1930s, and between 1932 and 1981, we grew the biggest and strongest and healthiest and most active and most politically vibrant middle class in the history of the world. And then Reagan came into office in 81 and said, okay, that's it, no more middle class. It's too problematic. These, these middle class people, you know, students out there rioting and protesting, saying, oh, no, we don't want to go to the Vietnam War. Uh, you know, African-Americans out there protesting, saying, you know, we, we want to be able to vote. We want equal rights in the marketplace. You've got, you know, people, you know, I already went through the list. I, I, no need to repeat it. So Reagan said, OK, we're going to get we're going to gut the middle class. Two thirds of Americans were in the middle class when Reagan came into office. Today, it's less than 50 percent. Fewer than half of us are in the middle class any longer. I mean, just think about that. So what do we do about this? Well, you know, how, how do these guys get away with a scam? You know, uh, for example, Joe Manchin is out there saying, uh, no, we've got to, uh, uh, you know, we've got to, uh, to gut the climate legislation, for example, because of jobs. Right? In other words, he's using the rhetoric of the middle class to, to, to gut the provisions in the climate legislation in the Build Back Better bill, uh, Joe Biden's Build Back Better bill, to gut those that will, that will provide a disincentive, that will basically tax coal and give incentives and benefits to utilities that convert to renewable energy. And he says, oh, jobs, we gotta, you know, we gotta worry about jobs. Has anybody, does anybody remember this piece in the Washington Post from uh, 2017? It was by Christopher Ingram. The headline is, the entire coal industry employs fewer people than Arby's. I'm not hearing big meat and cheese out there all freaked out about the losing jobs at Arby's. This is a scam. 
and the guys running these scams, like the, in this case, Joe Manchin with his, uh, you know, we got to save these coal jobs scam. I mean, this is the entire nation's coal industry employs fewer people than Arby's. The people running this scam are using the rhetoric of the middle class. Let's talk about the reality of the middle class. It's created by regulation and taxation. How much longer are we going to fall for this scam? Ted in Stewart, Illinois. Hey, Ted, what's on your mind today? Part of the problem today is the Supreme Court is run by conservatives. Yes. And I have a question here. If you look at Constitution Article 4, Section 2, the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states. So when it comes to the abortion ban in Texas and the Supreme Court didn't want to hear that. It's a clear violation of the Constitution. Yes. If if you if you believe or if you accept, you know, in a way, if you accept, you know, judicial review, I mean, the, the Supreme Court invented the Roe v. Wade uh, actually, it was the the next decision down the road from that. It was uh, oh, I'm forgetting. It was one of the women's health centers. You know, uh, in any case, the, the, but Roe v. Wade invented the kind of three trimester thing. Uh, I mean, the Supreme Court invented it. So, what the Supreme Court is essentially saying is, we don't agree with our own decision. We don't agree with our own law that we created as to what is and what isn't constitutional which I, I would think should call into question the legitimacy of the court, or at least of judicial review. Exactly. Why aren't they in contempt of their, themselves, I guess? They are. Or they're, they uh, well, actually, what, what they're doing is they're allowing Texas to be in contempt of their own decisions. But yeah, and, and the question is, is this going to, uh, you know, is the only outcome of this going to be that abortion becomes illegal in, in half the states in the United States? Or is the outcome of this going to be that uh, that the Supreme Court loses power, or both. I, I don't know the answer to the question. But. Why, the, why nobody has noticed this and nobody is making a, any kind of a deal about it. Yeah, that's a good point, Ted. It's a very good point. Uh, I guess we've, you and I have just noticed it and made a deal about it. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, thank you. Uh, Joan in San Francisco. Hey, Joan, what's up? Hi, hi Tom. Uh, yes, I wanted to uh, talk about ways to de-reganize our laws, and I'm saying that we need to do it all at once and have a specific plan and unite the Democrats and, and expand the Democrats. And I actually have a plan and a, a, I think a very dynamic idea to do that. It's called Tell 10 to Tell 10 to Register 100 Voters. And my thought is that we also activate the activists with this plan in a very specific business-like uh, nuts and bolts kind of way. You know, mm -hmm. you call 10 major activists, they get 10 other major activists to each get 10 people to register 100 voters each, Democrats. Yeah, you're talking about that driving from the top down. How about driving it from the bottom up? How about you get 10 people and they get 10 people and, and all of them try to be reaching out? To, to the legislators, essentially to the people at the top. Mike in Elyria, Ohio. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Uh, you get the Medal of Information, Tom. Thank you. You were talking about percentages mm -hmm. and margins, like back in the, the bewitch days. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> back in the 60s. Yeah, I mean, everybody gets those confused. Like if you had something that you bought for a dollar and you want to make a 35% margin, what would you charge for it? Well, it would not quite be a dollar thirty-five, but it'd be a dollar fifty-four, and you can prove it if you have a calculator. Right, it's your dollar. Yeah, I can't do the re the reverse. Uh, I was always bad with fractions, Mike. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand. And, and I was telling your your caller too that when I was growing up in the '60s and '70s, I knew some business owners, uh -huh. and there used to be a law that you had to make so much profit. Where you couldn't do it. No. Like a gas station owner? Yes. No, it wouldn't have been a law. It might have been a contract. You know, if the gas station owner had a franchise, then they may have had an agreement with a franchisor, you know, with the company that they well, were. Well, that was, that could be possibly true on that. That was 5%, 5 cents a gallon. Yeah. But on a retailer, had to make a 35% margin to pay overhead and everything else. Yeah. Yeah, that, that would not be a law. That would simply be a, a physical reality. Yeah, yeah, that would be, yeah, right. And yeah. do you know how much? marketing and sales adds to a cost? Well, it depends on the industry. It can be huge or it can be small. I mean, there, you've got industries like, like uh, car insurance where marketing is a substantial expense. 
Uh, you've got it's industries. For a manufacturer, and it, it's 50 to 70 percent. Well, it, it's, it's going to vary depending on your industry, but but yeah, I, I, I get your point, my, uh, Mike. Where yeah. where were you going with that, or did you just want to make that point? I just want to make that point and, and say that America has uh, some growing up to do yeah. about learning percentages and margins. So. Okay, I'm with you. Thank you very much. Uh, Michelle in Van Nuys, California. Hey, Michelle, what's on your mind today? Um, hi, uh, I was saying that we, those of us who understand what's going on really should, uh, we need to educate some key younger demographic people because they're the ones who it's really going to affect their future more. And when you look at history, also, like so many of the movements, it starts, it really is start, starts when the youth get active and things. So yes. you go back even to the 60s, like somebody like Jane Fonda, who was a big name out there. And Biden almost had that when before his election, you know, in his election, he was it Ariana Grande. He was getting out to bring out some of his messages of what he wanted to get out. So you have to go towards, you know, the college campuses, the people who are willing to learn and and actually where it's really it really is a matter of their own survival. So, uh, I'm like with you. And that's where the Koch Network, by the way, has invested millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in buying econ departments and buying political science departments and starting campus-based movements. Um, you've got some of these young people who are now major right-wing YouTube stars who are being funded directly or in many cases indirectly through that, through that Koch Network of right-wing billionaires. Um, and, uh, you know, they get that. And we need to, too. So, I, you know, I would say as a starting point, I don't know where else to start. I mean, this is the major premise. This whole thing about the middle class is the major premise of this book that I wrote literally 16 years ago. It's called Screwed. It still sells pretty well. Um, you know, the, the Undeclared War Against the Middle Class is the subtitle. But And, and it's the article that I published today at HartmanReport.com. You can take that and, and you know, share it with every young person you know. But, but take the idea for yourself, too. Just, you know, steal my information. Steal my, my I, I don't need any credit for this. This is not, and, and by the way, this is stuff that average Americans understood up until the 1980s. People, you know, we had big debates about Keynesian economics. Yeah, and and that's see, I'm, I'm I work in the accounting field, and you don't know that as soon as you talk, start talking financial stuff, people just tune out. Yeah. They don't want to hear anything, and so like I have people like who know people who lean towards the right because they, everyone around them did, and they don't understand this, and so I try to say little things to them to make them think because you mm -hmm. can't just come at them with a full barrage because their instincts are gonna their hackles go up and they they just. They won't listen to what you have to say. So it, it's actually a longer process with, with people who are more yeah. set in their ways. I totally get it. Michelle, thank you. Uh, excellent point. Russell in Sheridan, Wyoming. Hey, Russell, what's up? I wanted to drive this idea by you, Tom. These congressmen are trying to tear up the, the, the Build Back Better Act. Yeah. So some of them don't like this, some of them don't like that. Well, let's get them together and pass the tax. Just just raise taxes on the rich and then and then fight it out for everything else. The problem, Russell, is yeah. that's the the line in the sand that Kirsten Cinema has drawn. She has said, you know, and keep in mind, this three and a half trillion dollar bill is entirely financed by raising taxes on rich people and corporations back to where they were more or less before Trump became president. Not even fully back to where they were when Trump came into office, and and uh, which doesn't get anywhere near enough publicity, frankly. And Kirsten Cinema has said, I will not go along with any legislation that raises taxes on rich people or big corporations. Corporations that are showing massive profits and paying zero in income taxes. She won't go along with it. So what do we do? I mean, you know, we're kind of stuck at that point. Russell, thank you for the call. I, you know, I love the idea. And if we want to have a middle class again in the United States, there are these two simple steps that we have to take. Number one, raise taxes on, on the very rich, on the morbidly rich, and on the big corporations. Not just to pay for you know, a social safety net, but to provide a disincentive for them to rip us off any longer. Because they won't be able to keep the money, even if they rip us off. So why bother? Right? So number one. And number two, we need to get money out of politics so that our politicians can continue keeping in place systems that will build and maintain a middle class, a robust middle class. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Joe uh, Manchin has uh, been negotiating with Tina Smith, the uh, Democratic senator from Minnesota, the, the person who replaced Al Franken, as I recall, trying to get some sort of incentives for utilities to move away from coal and oil and toward renewables. And he's just been stringing her along for months and months and months. And then this week he just told her, sorry, ain't going to happen. She came out and said, he told me last week he just didn't think we could get there on the clean electricity program. He said, the question in my mind is, what are we going to do instead? Well, Joe Manchin says nothing. Because Joe Manchin made a half a million bucks last year from fossil fuels by just sitting on his ass. Which raises another issue that has to do with my original opening rant an hour and a half ago about how middle classes are not normal things. They have to be created through largely tax policy. And that is that Right now, if you make your living sitting on your butt waiting for the dividend checks to arrive, which is how Joe Manchin makes the majority of his income, yeah, he gets a $180,000 a year salary from the Senate, but this is how he makes the majority of his income. Half million to a million dollars a year, every year, just waiting for the dividend checks. And this is just one little, this is just his family's coal empire slice of it. At the same time that, and, and, and well, and to, to finish that thought, um, he's making his money on, on what's called passive income and pays virtually no income tax on it, depending on how it's handled. It's, it, it is possible to pay literally no income tax on it. You take that money and put it in a trust for your kids and then you borrow or just keep it in your own personal estate and you borrow against it and you live off the borrowed money rather than the, you know, you, you don't keep it as money, you keep it as stock, for example. And, and then, you know, let your kids inherit the stock. They don't pay any taxes on it. You don't pay any taxes on it. And you only have to pay a 1% or 2% fee for the borrowed money. This is how billionaires sustain their lifestyles. This is why Donald Trump is one of the reasons why he's constantly in debt. So that you pay no taxes. You pay zero taxes. Instead of paying taxes, you're paying interest to the bank. And right now, with a tax rate at 30% and an interest to the bank at 1%, it's an easy choice. This is, by the way, the same Joe Manchin, and, and this is not unique to Joe Manchin, by the way. This is something that every Republican in the Senate and the House will tell you. Every Republican in every state will tell you. And that is that when you offer money to people, they will take that money and not work because people are inherently lazy. This was the argument that Republicans across the country made for ending the $600 a week and then the $300 a week that we were subsidizing people with during the, the recession that happened as a result of COVID. And this is why about a dozen Republican states ended those unemployment benefits three months before the rest of the country did this year. And what they were arguing was, we will show you. We're going to end these unemployment benefit bonuses, these this $300 a week. We're going to end that in our state, and you will see suddenly everybody in our state is going to be back to work. And there was literally no measurable difference between the states that ended the unemployment benefits and the states that didn't in terms of people looking for work. The difference was in people being in poverty, in ch children going to sleep hungry, in families being thrown out of their homes, it increases in homelessness. That's where you saw the difference. But Manchin is out there and the, and the entire Republican Party is out there saying, oh, you can't have an entitlement society. If you give people money, it makes them lazy. 
says the guy who is making a half a million dollars a year doing nothing. I, it, it's like, how can, how can we even live in, a, in this world with, these, with this bizarre mixed message? Oh, you can't give people free money. You have to, you know, you, you can't do that. You, you must force them to work for it unless they're rich. If they're rich, it's all good. Pass it along to their kids. Take it, you know, take it from their family coal business. It's all good. Anyhow, let me pick up your phone calls here. Kusai in Campo, California. Hey, Kusai, what's up? When do we get to a point where we talk openly about the danger to national security and national interest that individual or corporate exuberant wealth makes? After all, according to the law, corporations are people. Well, you're seeing so that right now, Kusai. I mean, the, the, the attacks. That's, that's what I'm leading to. Yeah, yeah. The attacks, the attacks on our country, the attacks on our school boards, the, the attacks on the attacks on our, our election officials, in large yeah, part, are being driven by people who are yeah. who have fallen out of the middle class. They're extremely pissed off. They're not sure who to be pissed off at. And so the billionaires come along and create some astroturf groups or fund some militias and say, here, you know, the, the bad guys are those uh, liberals. The bad guys are the people of color. Yeah, the bad absolutely. guys are. I mean, go ahead. If after all, we are already at a point where two or three of those big corporations can budget as much money for their national operation as any of the top five countries in the world. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And you it's know, a those big old James challenge. Bond movies come to, to come to mind, you know, the bad guy yes. behind an island. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's, it's Goldfinger all over again. Kusai, I got I to move along. Thank you for the call. You, you, all offer, you usually offer something really useful there, and that was a good one. Gary in Overland Park, Kansas. Hey, Gary, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, uh, early in the show, you asked how to spread the news that the middle class is not normal under capitalism. And you had another caller that called in shortly after that and said, when somebody talks about just regular economic data, people tune out. And that's something I'd wrestled with, because research shows that stories change people's subconscious minds much better than data. You're right. So I wrote a thriller novel about the billionaire destruction of the middle class, titled The Fourth Circle of Hell. Huh. I made it paste. I made it exciting and let the novel's heroes discover the 2,400-year history of the dark forces behind unchecked billionaire greed from ancient Rome to today's oligarchs. Well, they're certainly there, and I, I think you could put the Egyptian pharaohs in that category, too, 3,000 years ago, you know, or 3,700 years ago, I think it is. Um, you know, That's they were the billionaires right. of their era. It's not That's like this is a new invention. <laughs> you know? No, no, it's going on forever. <laughs> yeah. And in recent American history, they've been using a thing that I call in my book demographic necrosis, meaning society forgets the economic lessons of the past one funeral at a time. It's no accident that the time frame between the great crash of 1873 and the 1929 crash was 56 years, which is the exact life expectancy at the time of the crash in 29. And it's also no coincidence that between 1929 and the 2007 crash, the time between the crash was 78 years. And if you look at the government life expectancy table, the life expectancy in 2007 was 78 years. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you're, you're playing off Strauss and Howe's theory from the fourth turning um, you know, using mm -hmm. using that quote from Arnold Toynbee that when the last man who remembers the horrors of the last great war dies, the next great war becomes inevitable because we only remember the glory of the war, not the horrors of the war. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I I can't I can't argue with that. I've I've been singing that song for a lot of years. And uh, I, very good, Gary. Is your book uh, for sale anywhere? It's for sale on Amazon. The Fourth Circle of Hell. It's okay. Named after infernos. The, yeah, Dante. Uh, yeah. I get it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, good to hear from you, Gary. I appreciate the call. Apropos of my rant this morning, during the break, I was checking my email and there was, uh, you know, I got my newsletter from thewriting.com, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. It's, uh, you know, we read the right-wing news so you don't have to. And the top story was from CNS News, an article by Jacob Hornberger. He's the uh, Future of Freedom Foundation's president and founder. Uh, right. 
future of freedom. My God. His headline is basically calling for the IRS to be abolished. Don't raise taxes on the rich. That'll bring about another damn middle class. And they are so friggin' pesky. He said instead, he says today both welfare state spending and warfare state spending are hurtling America toward a massive economic, fiscal, and monetary crisis. This is the perfect time for national soul searching, especially before the crisis hits when rational thinking will inevitably be in short supply. Among the best founding principles of our nation was no income taxation and no IRS. Right. You want to kill the middle class? That's how you do it. Anyhow, George in Los Angeles. Hey, George, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? One thing I noticed that's really worrying me, and other people agree with me when I talk about them, intelligent people, we're shouting at each other, the right and the left, more nobody's listening. There's no, like, kind of, like, what, what can we agree on so we can get to, get to something sane other than where we are now? And one idea is simply where we can accommodate the other side, where it's not something, you know, a line in the sand. Or maybe, listen, or maybe they have a, a point. Maybe they have a point on something. In other words, where we can work things out. Okay, yeah, I think you know me from other calls. My thing is fi- the importance of firearms and defending the weak and helpless. And I'm on the left. Yeah, no, I, I get it, George. Yeah, and we've had that conversation. I, yeah, and, that's and that, all, and that's that all. might it's be an area that, that we can come together. I, I'd like to keep this focused on economics for, for this moment right well, me, now. But, yeah, I, I, agree, I don't think I you're agree. going to, you know, having everybody having guns or nobody having guns has nothing to do with whether you have a middle class or not. That has to do with how violent your society is, or at least how gun-filled and bullet-filled your society is. But, um, yeah, no, no I'm, I'm saying I agree. I, to the point of, it's not just that. It's simply on anything, on not just one topic, but on yeah. things where we can on other topics, too, for economic things. Yeah, well, well you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to finding common ground. I'm, I'm all in favor of it. it it's, getting, it's getting harder and harder to do, but I'm with you. George, thank you for the call. Rudy in Atlanta. Hey, Rudy, what's up? I've always said that Democrats had a, a messaging issue. Yeah. We need to start being able to talk to people that are on the ground, people that are living and, and making this, actually making this country move. And when you say scam, everyone knows that it's a scam. But if you said this is a modern day pimping, just throw the word pimping out there. Okay. Just say, hey, these guys are pimping you. And the reason why I say that, that's how you really fertilize people's thinking. Everyone understands what pimping is, but pimping has always been like a derogatory. Derogatory, but that pimping, everyone's been pimp. Yeah. If you look at into the in, look at, uh, into crappy uh, workplace, into a crappy workplace, right. and, and yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it. And and, you, and 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 the average kid that listens to music understands what pimping is, and when they hear the word pimping, then, then they understand someone's getting dogged out. Yeah, I got and it. That's I, how you. I got it, Rudy. Yeah. And and so and and, and, and I don't understand why having someone come out and just say, hey. These people are pimping. Yeah, no, I I, I get it. I'm with you. I I don't think that, you know, inserting one word into our lexicon is going to magically change everything. But I'm with you that we need a broader, you know, vocabulary to describe what's being done to to, to working people in America. I'm totally with you. Rudy, excellent. Thank you. Jan in Denver. Hey, Jan, what's up? Um, Hi, hi, Tom. Love your show. Um, Regarding taxation, it's really paying your dues, paying your membership uh, fee in America. To society. If you join a country club, uh, you pay fees mm-hmm. uh, because you did not build the swimming pool, but you have to maintain it. It is patriotic to be a taxpayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is from the book, Don't Think of an Elephant, by George Lakoff. Right. And you brought, you made me aware of this years and years ago on your show. Oh yeah, we used to have George yeah. on the show regularly back in the day, and and <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I, I get it. And and if you put it in this, here's here's the the big basket frame, as it were. Number one, your point, Jan, that taxes are the price of admission to civil society. They're, they're your dues, your your annual dues to be a member of a functioning civil society. Number one. Number two. Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan come along and say, there's no such thing as society. Margaret Thatcher literally said that. There's no such thing as society. There's only a collection of individuals and families. And she was echoing a 1961 book that Milton Friedman published uh, that I have at home. I'm drawing a blank on the title right now. 
I think it might be freedom and capitalism. And, and you know, this was, this was Milton Friedman's grand contribution to our, to our political dialogue, one of, one of a few of them, that led to what he and Hayek and Mises called neoliberalism. They, they came up with that word in 1947 in a meeting in Switzerland in Mount Pelerin. The idea that there is no such thing as society. So if there is no society, if it's all just individuals, if there's no society, how can we owe dues to society? And this has like become a mantra on the right. I'm with you, Jana, and, and you said it very, very well. Thank you very much for that. Paul in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? You know, another point is if you eliminate the middle class, who can buy from the rich? You have what you have right now, only, you know, it just gets worse and worse and worse. We've had capitalism yeah, well, for 7,000 years. Well, yeah, they won't be able to buy the products. Well, they'll be able to buy, they just won't be able to buy at the levels they could before. And it's one of the reasons why we saw economic growth in the United States running between 3 and 4% decade after decade in the 50s, in the 60s, and in the 70s, and in the early 80s. And then, you know, it, it kind of collapsed. We, we have been averaging around 2.3% uh, economic growth, GDP growth, ever since. And in part, it's because as the middle class gets weaker and weaker, it's less able to buy and thus less able to maintain the economy. From a conservative point of view, that's an okay thing, because then you get this static economy like they had from literally from the probably 1200s or 1300s when Henry V, I think, I don't know what year he was king, but he was the one who introduced mercantilism to England and basically lifted, you know, started what today we might refer to as the Industrial Revolution, started, you know, the exports and things like that, the, the, the whole Tudor plan. It was probably in the 1400s, but in any case, he started that and lifted England out of basically mud huts and dirt roads and turned it into a, you know, a modern society with big cities or at least began that process. And from then right up until the 1950s, you did not have a substantial middle class in, in the United Kingdom. You could argue that you began having one in the, in the late 1800s, but World War I and World War II were highly disruptive to that process. But it really came about in the 1940s, just like it did here in the United States in the 1950s. You know, as a consequence mm -hmm. of high level of taxation and a strong social sa safety net and the right to unionize. And Thatcher undid all that in 78 in England and Reagan undid all that in 81 in the United States, and both our countries have seen a steady decline in the middle class, and we're going back to that world that Charles Dickens chronicled so well in A Christmas Carol, and, and do you get my point, Paul? Yeah, well, I get your point, but you know, what muddies the water a little bit, Tom, yeah. is the fact of credit. How credit, credit well, see, that's the problem, and this is where we're in this bubble right now, because credit allows people to live like they're in the middle class, even when government policy has slid them out of the middle class. That's a false thought. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that analysis, but I would say, you know, in a larger sense, what it is is we've got this massive debt bubble right now all across the United That's States correct. as a result of people trying to keep up with the middle class lifestyle when their salaries no longer support it as prices are going up and housing is going up and medical care is going up and food is going up. And the consequence of that is that they're no longer the middle class. They're the working poor. The working poor can sustain an economy. It's not a red hot economy, but it's an economy. And as long as the rich keep getting richer and richer, they don't care. It's fine with them. Look at how much money Bezos has made in the last year. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We talked about this yesterday. U.S. billionaire wealth has soared by 70%, $2.1 trillion just during the 19 months of the pandemic. They don't mind if there's no middle class. Alex in Houston, Texas. Hey, Alex, thanks for, thanks for watching this on YouTube. I appreciate it. What's up? Number one, what it cost us to create the middle class, and it mm-hmm. didn't come out of thin air. Yep. And, and number two is what lengths the ruling class will go to to try to keep labor and the middle class down. And I think yep. that applies today as much as it did 100 years ago. Amen, Israel. I am totally I really with you, do. and I, I, it's a brilliant analysis. Thank you very much for that. I, that was perfect. David in San Francisco. Hey, David, what's on your mind? Yeah, I heard you talking about all the way back to Pharaoh's Day with uh, the same old economic scams. And, uh, you know, if you think about uh, the laws of science say that for every action, there's a separate and equal reaction. Well, the world of money gives you a separate action, but it might leave you with hazardous waste. It might leave you with uh, broken products and defective products and all sorts of things. There's a fake perpetual motion machine that's created with money, and the world, the actual Earth, has to live up to how fast things can grow, how much water is available, uh, you know, the winds and the rains and the floods and the loss of the topsoil. Uh, You know, there's depreciation that's going on in the world, but the money world says we can grow forever. Right, you're talking about fractional reserve banking. Uh, among other things, but it's fake economics, yeah. and uh, and it's the corporate state. And when you start looking at the idea that uh, you know Biden is being uh, you know razzed because he can't get these ships to land on shore, and we're going to have a sorry Christmas if we don't have all this cheap junk uh, uh, come floating in, uh, you know we we're being told that the economy is more important than the earth. And, uh, you know, the president's job is to maintain uh, the property of America. He's supposed to be the property manager of America. Trump was a pretty crappy one because he intentionally lost lawsuits which showed that we were winning. uh, And all of a sudden he threw those lawsuits to the polluters and, and whatnot. He destroyed the EPA. He shredded records. And the idea that America's property needs to be managed, and it needs to be managed wisely, and the infrastructure bill's a big part of that. And the idea that somebody would intentionally poison the water or leave the topsoil to be washed away by massive storms, uh, you know, we're, we need an honest property manager. The Republicans are clearly going for the corporate state rinky-dink. Oh, and have been since, I mean, that, they threw in 100% with that in 1981. The cult of Reagan and the cult of Trump are not that different. The, the Republican Party has bought into, and, and Republican voters have bought into the idea idea that a nation, an oligarchy basically, a nation run by rich people, of, by, and for rich people, where occasionally they'll throw some crumbs your way is like the way to go. And, well, fraud, and, then, and then they build cults of personality around that to keep right, it going. But fr- fraud doesn't work with measurements, right? So they yeah. have to intentionally destroy the record so there's no measurements. And I, I'm just, you know, I, I'm razzing the Republicans right now because they pretend to be conservatives, pretend to look out for the topsoil of America, or to make sure that every city is uh, strong and independent. It's not dependent upon some corporate chain or the Federal Reserve or any other kings of London or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the each conservative in America means that every town is self-strong and independent, and uh, and you know unity with uh, 50 states and inter, uh, what do you call it, the um, intercommerce stability of it instead of having electronic money that'll just suck all of America's assets to the Cayman Islands in a matter of minutes. Right. Uh, you know, they, they, right. Republicans so, are so, fake. So the bottom, bottom line here, your rant, David, is that we're moving toward a corporate state. Oh, we've been in it. I actually think that Russia and China are also corporate states of a different Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. What's happening right now is that the oligarchs of the world are getting together. And this has been going on for the last 40 years, and it's getting worse and worse. David, thank you. Very, very very astute analysis. Bob in Wheeling, Illinois. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today? Uh, I'm not sure about the the way that congressional um, laws work. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm wondering is if the Democrats cut back enough um, 
provisions, etc., on the big infrastructure bill to pass it, um, would they then, if they gain enough seats because they pass the big and the little infrastructure and the the right to vote laws, if they pass those three, they would pr- most likely gain seats in both the House and the Senate. Would they then be able making Mansion and Cinema irrelevant? Would they then be able to modify those bills, change them so that they get more of what they want now? You're building the case for incrementalism, Bob, that frankly Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema have been making, which is pass the $500 billion new spending bill that has been worked out between corporate Democrats and Republic and corporate Republicans. And then, you know, we'll just, we'll improve things later when we get the glory from that. The Republicans will take all the credit for that, I guarantee you. Um, that's why they signed on to it. They, you know, every place where they can take credit, they will take credit. And that's not going to inure a huge credit to Democrats, number one. Number two, it's not transformational. It's not, it's not, the, that piece of legislation is not the kind of thing where seniors are going to say, holy cow, I can go to the dentist now. Uh, it's not the kind of thing no, where a young family is going to say, holy cow, I don't have to spend $15,000 a year on childcare anymore. I mean, you know, th- that's no, that's all in the three and a half trillion dollar bill. And and, know. and where, you know, people who are concerned about the future of their children and grandchildren are going to say, you know, holy cow, I don't have to worry quite so much about the future of my children and grandchildren because we're going to get off fossil fuels. I, I know all that. But what I'm saying is it it appears that getting everything in the second bill, in the big bill now is not going to be possible. Would it be possible, is it possible, the incrementalism, is it possible to, to pass all three of those bills now in, in a lesser yeah. form? The voting rights bill can only be passed, them. will only be, I, I think they're going to bring that to a vote on Friday, but that will only be successful. In fact, I got an email, let me just share this with you real quickly. I got an email today from, uh, from FreedomWorks. Um, from Adam Brandon, the, the CEO of FreedomWorks. Thomas, facing grim prospects in 2022, Democrats in Congress have moved to seize total control of our election process by passing the so-called Freedom to Vote Act. This is FreedomWorks. This is you know, one of the premier front groups for the Koch Network. A better name for this disastrous bill would be the End the Fair Elections Act because the radical left is willing to do whatever it takes to maintain permanent power in Washington, D.C., including rigging the entire election system in their favor. What's worse is the fact that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is set to bring this election takeover scheme to the floor for a vote this week, possibly as early as tomorrow. Thomas, I know I've reached out to you a lot recently, but the stakes have never been higher, so if you haven't already, please call 202-318-4129 right now and demand that your U.S. senators vote against the End of Fair Elections Act. And then he goes upside down world. Yeah, it is. It's, you know, if this law is passed, uh, it would order organizations like FreedomWorks to disclose personal information about donors, a dangerous prospect in today's cancel culture world, violating their First Amendment rights. It would give unelected bureaucrats. It just goes on through his rants. But so it's projection. It's the same know, thing that Trump did. They, right. They, but they but my point is that the is that, is that the right wing billionaires have heavily and aggressively mobilized around a piece of legislation that has nothing to do with their economic interests other than keeping Republicans in office. Rigging elections. They're just fine with that. As long as those Republicans will keep their taxes low and their companies deregulated. That's their only interest. My fear is that if we don't get something to hang hats on for want of a better term uh going into the 22 election if we don't have something to show for having the house theoretically the senate and the presidency in one party if we have nothing to show for it then we will not win anything i agree with you america i mean and this is the thing that people are agonizing over americans love big action. They love big, you know, American Reagan. Let's come. Let's completely abandon Keynesian economics, drop taxes from from 74 percent down to 25 percent, blow up the economy. We're going to do all kinds. You know, Reagan was, you know, loved for that. Uh, LBJ, we're going to create Medicare, Medicaid, uh, food stamps, uh, the, the New Deal, obviously, Social Security and unemployment insurance and the right to unionize. These are, you know, these are examples of really big programs that made presidents like famous. And you're absolutely right. If, if Joe Biden can't get something done, we're toast in 2022, which is why they're fighting us so hard. Paul in Alden, New York. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? I just want to say I worked in LRB in the Reagan years, 
And I the agree National Labor Relations Board? Yes, I did. Okay, uh, go for it. And I agree with you about the hollowing out of the uh, labor unions. Oh, Ray Donovan was the first labor secretary in the history of the United States who was anti-labor. Yeah. Yeah. It was after Reagan and the PACO strike, though, they, the management labor bar really stepped it up. They got a lot of clients, and they realized what you can do if you, use a, you lose a union election, wait out a year, engage in what they called hard bargaining, and don't and by any means agree to any kind of a contract. Throw out any kind of bar, any proposals you think the union won't agree to, and stall out the that bargaining past that, that initial year. Yeah. After that, the union's status as representative can be questioned, and that's how, that's how that worked, okay? Mm-hmm. The other strategy they came up with was provoke a strike. Uh, and I saw plenty of that. And then they use that, use that strike to... And if the union goes out on strike, that's what you want. Right, because you can use the that to break the union. The already in a weak proposal position, excuse me, right. as we know, because of the way capital moved and all that stuff uh, leading up to the Reagan years. They were already in a weak position. If you got them to strike, you hired permanent replacements. Permanent replacements are obviously going to be not pro-union. They're going to be anti-union. Permanent replacements uh, can stay on, and the people, the strikers, are only called back to work as needed. Right. As needed, right. which means they out of job. Uh, majority of them are probably out of a job. Right, and and, uh, and after that, another that period, you can again question the status of the union. Right, and, and, and the union and, won't be the union won't be around. And a lot of that came. So, some of that came out of legislation. Some of it came out of executive action and policy by Reagan. An awful lot, lot of it, is, though, lot of came it out of the Supreme the, Court. The Reagan board looking at uh, bargaining law. And they obviously made it a lot more reactionary. Right, but the Supreme Court changed the rules of the game with multiple decisions. I wrote a whole chapter about Mm -hmm. this for Mm -hmm. for my book on the Supreme Court that is posted Mm -hmm. online, actually, at TomHartman.com slash, I think, Supreme Court. And, 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 you know, this whole series of court decisions in the 70s, 80s, and 90s where the Supreme Court basically gutted union rights. uh, They did. Is. They did, and the thing about permanent replacements, it, it, at the time it didn't have a great impact. Only later, after the Reagan impulse yeah. came in, uh, th- that's when it uh, really came into effect. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and, and the unions, like I say, were already in a weak position because of the movement of capital, first to the South and overseas, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Uh, and Reagan just jumped on their back. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he did. It was, it was a bad period. He absolutely did. And, and you know, overseeing the destruction of the American middle class uh, is something for which the, the hard right still celebrates Ronald Reagan. Right. And wasn't that wonderful right. what he did? You know, he busted up those terrible unions, those evil union bosses. <laughs> it's like, yeah, really? Absolutely. You know, no more middle class? That's, a, that's, that, that's your plan? Paul, thanks absolutely. a lot for the call. People are only realizing now. Yeah, I think uh, so. What a mistake that was. I think How so. Bad that was. Paul, I got to run, but thank you. I, you know, there were some of us who were yelling at the time. Don't do this! <laughs> but here we are. Nolan in St. Charles, Illinois. Hey, Nolan, thanks for listening to WCPT. What's on your mind today? I grew up a union, in a union family. Uh, grandfathers were coal miners. Father was a contractor. And, you know, seven uncles who were vets. So I believe in the unions because it allowed me to buy my house because I didn't have to take care of my parents, even though they lost theirs because of medical bills. And they had 80%, you know, 80-20 coverage under Blue Cross, kind of mm-hmm. the standard of the day. But when you look at the side benefit of benefit of the economic growth we could have in this country with universal health care. I have a couple patents and a couple pending, but I really can't hire away the engineers I need from the large corporations because the cost of health care. Yeah. And I just don't see how people can't see that that would be the biggest boom to our economy to let entrepreneurs, you know, really have a go at this. It'd be a surge that we haven't seen for 100 years. It would also save us all a pile of money. As an employer, I'm paying for health insurance, not just health insurance, you know, primary health insurance for Sean and Nate and me, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But but also as an employer, 
Um, I, I've got to pay for various types of liability insurance that involve health care if somebody gets injured. You've got, you know, uh, those kinds of things you've got uh, with your car insurance. Chances are there's a hospitalization rider in there that you're paying for. I mean, all those things could go away under a single payer health care system. We would all save money. Uh, we wouldn't have these giant blood sucking leeches stuck to our backs. Uh, you know, it just it, it, it would be such a good thing. You're spot on, Nolan. Thank you very much for that. Larry in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? Uh, yeah, discussing uh, cinema and um, mansion. Mansion, yeah, right. Uh, that uh, many people have pointed out that had the Democrats not lost six seats in the House and had gained seats in the, in the Senate instead of having a tie, they'd be fairly much irrelevant. Uh, OIC was on uh, Meet the Press a couple of weeks ago and brilliant. He said, "If we had a Parliament like any other developed country." Uh, sensible country, uh, Manchin and I wouldn't even be in the same party. Right. That's and true. So well, things, but we don't me, have a parliament, and we don't have a multi-party system, so... Okay, Larry, Larry i got to run. <laughs> the day has gone. The day has flown by. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same bat time, same bat place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was even intended to be. That's what the demos, right? The Greek word for people. So get out there, be the people. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.